Let's get educated. That's why we're here, to bring you the stories impacting K-12 classrooms and college campuses. It's time for a little education. Hello, everyone, and welcome. I'm Katie Patrick, joined by Mr. David Fiorazzo. And it's the end of the week for us around here, so <laughs> we made it to the end. But just as a reminder, if you want to support the work of this show or any of our other programs, consider getting yourself a little bit of swag. Visit freedomproject.com slash store. Get yourself a mug or a shirt, a hoodie, whatever you may need. Again, it's freedomproject.com slash store. All right, friends, again, it's time to grab your educated mug and your cappuccino or your pumpkin spice latte. And it's that special time to check in with Mr. Alex Newman to see what story he has to share with us this week. Hey, Alex. Thanks, guys. Good to see you. Uh, so, yeah, interesting story out of Tennessee. The uh, legislature there are, is considering uh, separating themselves from the federal government when it comes to education. They're considering cutting off the flow of federal funds and in exchange uh, restoring their sovereignty over the public school system there and ending federal mandates. Uh, fascinating. Obviously, conservatives were pretty pleased and uh, quite a few liberals were uh, very whiny. Uh, they think that uh, it's totally fine, apparently, that uh, children can't read or do math, but they know lots about gender and uh, sexual orientation. Uh, so this uh, bill that was filed this week uh, would create this panel, uh, 11 members, and uh, would make recommendations. I mean, it wouldn't have uh, decision-making power, but it would make recommendations to the governor and to the state's leadership on how the public school system could wean itself off of federal dollars. And uh, that would allow the state to uh, basically do things the way it wants to when it comes to education. Um, obviously, like uh, every other state, Tennessee gets uh, some federal money each year for education. But of course, like with every other state, it comes with strings attached. They say, here, have some free money. And then, oh, by the way, you have to do this, that and the other. Um, including testing, including, I mean, every kind of mandate you can imagine, gender stuff, um, uh, even the gender of textbook writers is, is covered in these things. So uh, that money that sounds free actually comes with these uh, terrible, terrible strings or chains attached. Um, for most states, the federal funding for their education system is about 10% of their budget. Uh, Tennessee gets about $2 billion a year, and I think their education budget is about $10 billion a year. So um, a little bit more for Tennessee than for other states. But um, this this committee is in charge, this uh, panel task force, whatever you want to call it, would be in charge of figuring out how to uh, cut that off and replace that with um, with funds raised at the state level. Um, so the committee would be run by uh, six legislators, uh, two school superintendents, two teachers, and um, unfortunately it would be chaired by a, a lady who we've met before at the Newman Report, uh, Education Commissioner Penny Schwinn. Um, she's the totalitarian who thought the government needed to go to every single child in the state during COVID and check on them at home uh, because, you I mean, you can't trust children to be with their parents, right? The government needs to uh, oversee its children, right? That, that's the kind of mindset that uh, some of these people have. It's very troubling. Uh, the panel will be appointed by uh, Governor Bill Lee, who's you know, from what I understand, something of a rhino, but um, you know, maybe less so than certain others. Uh, and then also uh, House Speaker Sexton. And um, in addition to figuring out the feasibility of whether they could do this, they'd also be in charge of um, actually drawing up a plan for doing it, a concrete roadmap. And uh, the House Speaker uh, Sexton says basically we'll be able to educate the kids how Tennessee sees fit uh, without uh, what he described as federal government interference in the schools. 
Um, he said, and I'm quoting here from him, he said, we as a state can lead the nation once again in telling the federal government that they can keep their money and we'll just do things the Tennessee way. And that should start first and foremost with the Department of Education. Uh, kudos, Speaker Sexton. Uh, that could be a model for other states as well. Uh, now, spokesman for the governor and for uh, Senate leadership also uh, indicated that they were open to these ideas. Uh, Senator Randy McNally, who also uh, runs the Senate and serves as lieutenant governor, uh, blasted what he described as overly burdensome mandates from the federal government, especially on education. And his spokesman said he thought these discussions on ending federal funding and restoring Tennessee control over the schools were constructive, is the term he used. Um, but as I mentioned at the start, uh, a lot of whiny liberals who are happy with the status quo uh, were whining because that's what they do. Uh, so you've got this guy, uh, Senate Minority Leader Raumesh Akbari. Um, he purports to represent a district in Memphis where uh, basically everybody's illiterate. I mean, <laughs> if you look at the, the government's data, uh, it is an absolute atrocity. I mean, no possible person in their right mind could think this was acceptable. But he says, uh, and I'm quoting here from him, uh, this funding, this federal funding, uh, lifts up underserved students in rural schools and ensure that every kid gets warm meals during the school year. Uh, he says, no matter how many studies they do, there will never be a scenario where it's a good idea to reject billions worth of federal funding for our students and teachers. Uh, fortunately, that kind of lunacy is uh, is in the minority in Tennessee. These people don't have a whole lot of power uh, at the state level. Uh, in Memphis, they do. That's why part, one of the reasons why the kids can't read. That's one of the reasons why it's one of the most violent cities in the entire United States. That's uh, one of the reasons why the poverty rate is out of control, uh, because they follow these kinds of dumb policies. But uh, but, yeah, they want to keep this uh, whole school fraud going. They want to keep the federal funds flowing and they want to keep Joe Biden's boot on the schools of the state of Tennessee. Um now, uh, there are multiple plans being developed right now to get states out from under federal control. A U.S. PI, U.S. Parents Involved in Education, where Duke and I both serve on the advisory board, has been working on a plan for a while. They've got a plan for the federal government to stop it. Now they're working on plans for states to stop it. But it very much looks like, from what we've seen, that um, you could cut the federal funding and actually you're, you're, you would save money because you wouldn't have to obey this dizzying array of endless mandates. Uh, now, obviously, there's no legitimate reason for the federal government to be uh, extracting money from all Americans to unconstitutionally pay for schools in Tennessee or any other state. Uh, of course, the Tenth Amendment makes that the responsibility of states and or the people, I would say the people. Uh, and so uh, there's no reason for the states to be submitting to this. It's, it's absolutely preposterous. Getting the federal government out of the public schools would be a really good start, in my opinion, uh, on the road to eventually going further and getting government out of education, putting parents, churches and local organizations back in charge of schooling. And who knows, maybe Tennessee can lead the way. Thanks, guys. Is belief in God and the biblical worldview nearing extinction in America? According to a new and not exactly shocking study from the Cultural Research Center at Arizona Christian University, the answer is yes. Now, the disturbing results are the first study of Americans' worldview in the post-lockdown era of the last few years, and according to the CRC, the biblical worldview has declined to a historic low of just 4%. It's no wonder our general decency, virtue, and morality as a nation is practically in the gutter. I'm David Fiorazzo, and this is Christ and Culture.
Now, every adult has a worldview, a lens through which we see the world and a filter by which we make our decisions. I agree with researcher Dr. George Barna, who says people don't just accidentally or randomly go through life and then develop a biblical worldview. It takes committed, intentional, purposeful effort. For Christian parents today, this requires a non-negotiable decision and determination to teach, influence, and persuade your children to embrace biblical values and principles as the foundation for life, truth, and decision-making. Now, America's secular progressive culture, however, is taking generations of kids in the exact opposite direction to the left, perhaps. In 2020, 69% of people fell into what the CRC calls the world citizen category. What this means is these folks might embrace a few biblical principles and may even believe in God and go to church, but their lifestyle doesn't reflect biblical teachings. They live contrary to scripture, and most are not convicted to do otherwise. Now, just two years later, the majority, 82% of the population, falls into this group. Also, last year, uh, researchers showed that 94% of young parents in America believed in a blending of multiple worldviews in which no single life philosophy is dominant, kind of like a smorgasbord. Now, this can be confusing and self-contradictory. The new study shows fewer people believe in the one true God, and George Barna said this, When you put the data in perspective, the biblical worldview is shuffling toward the edge of the cliff. As things stand today, biblical theism is much closer to extinction in America than it is to influencing the soul of the nation." End quote. Powerful words. 4% is the lowest it's been since Barna began measuring biblical worldview in the early 1990s. The obvious concern today is that young people have almost a non-existent godly influence in their lives. As a result, Americans are raising the most anti-Christian kids who are, quote, the most aggressive at rejecting biblical principles in our culture. One reason for this is, sadly, few Christian churches and schools are equipping and preparing young people to develop a biblical worldview. So, parents, establishing a biblical worldview in your kids falls on your shoulders. You should see it not just as a responsibility, but an honor to raise strong, virtuous Christian children at home. Now, modern culture leads today's shift away from God and the Bible, obviously, to a worldview that puts things like emotion, experience, and feelings over facts and one-way tolerance over truth. Theologian John Ankerberg once said, If the Bible is the inerrant word of God, and if it authoritatively answers the fundamental questions of life, then who can logically be passive and ignore its teachings? If the Bible accurately tells us who God is, who we are, why we're here, and what happens when we die, is there a living soul anywhere who should fail to be impressed? End quote. As opposed to every other belief system that leaves you with more questions, Christianity provides compelling answers to the questions of origin, meaning, morality, and destiny. So, when the majority of people are heading off the cliff, don't follow. God bless you and keep speaking the truth about things that matter.
Today's show is sponsored by our friends at MyPillow. Save up to 66% on pristine quality bedding, towels, slippers, signature pillows, and much more when you use the code EDUCATED. That's E-D-U-C-A-T-E-D, EDUCATED. Support this show and a great American company. The way I understand my gender and the way that I want other people to understand my gender are two wildly different things. Because I and certain people that I've talked to about this understand the nuances and complicated relationships that I have with womanhood. So those are included when we think of me as a woman or say she, her. Like those weird relationships are still understood. But almost everyone else, they don't have that. So they don't get to call me those things. To almost everyone else in real life, I am not a woman and I use they, them. But then because I will call myself a woman or use she, her, understanding the nuances of it all, I feel guilty when I feel bad about getting misgendered by people who should be using they, them and not thinking of me as a woman. I mean, they're not wrong, except they don't know they're not wrong. Well, uh, how do you argue with that? No, seriously, how can you argue with that? Because this lady basically, I mean, she's basically stating, without stating, that she's cuckoo for Cocoa Puffs, but she wants you all to play along so she feels better about herself, only when she's calling herself a herself, but you can't know that with being a woman, but it's all right. This is the society we live in now, where feelings trump all logic and understanding. But hey, we're not gonna stop there. I say we head to the classroom to see what other stories are trending left. And of course we know some of these crazy people are now becoming teachers and therefore forcing their bad mm, nonsense on young impressionable children who will then become the next voting generation. I give you Z, Zem, Zer. A lot of people were asking in the comments of my last couple of videos about my anchor charts. So I'm gonna take a minute to show you guys what I was talking about. So here you can see a couple of other anchor charts that I have for mindfulness. Um, and then there at the top are my, my, my anchor charts about my pronouns. It says, my name is Mix Cogdill. My pronouns are Z, Zem, Zer, and Zers. How to refer to Mix Cogdill. Mix C is my teacher. Z is multilingual. Students practice and speak Spanish with Zem. Zer Javi is learning languages. Okay. We can't get most students at a basic reading level. No one is proficient in reading these days. And yet we have this teacher out there trying to focus only on Zer, Zem, Zem, Zoom, Zazu, which isn't even a language. It is not English. Just teach what you are supposed to be teaching and not focusing so much on your pronouns for what you want to do and your feelings. But while some teachers may be obsessed with gender and pronouns, others are fixated on their white guilt, or should I say white guilt. In fact, one such teacher has joined a mentorship program to learn firsthand from black women just how terrible she is and how she can stop causing damage to black students. I am going to be beginning a uh, mentorship where I am under the mentorship, actually, of um, some very strong professional black women who that's what they do. They help others learn how to unpack their white violence. And why it's important to me is professionally, I am a teacher. Um, I'm going back to work in the fall and I want to be the best 
person and teacher that I can be, and I know change begins within first, but for me, in order for me to grow and nurture these young scholars who might be black and brown, I have to unpack that white violence or I'm going to cause damage. Whoa, 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 whoa. Let's first start with you not holding that black pen in the manner you are doing. That was rather white violent of you to do. Finally, speaking of white people being the devil, uh, I want to introduce you to a woman who casually states, all white people are racist. That's just the way life is because you were born white. So here's the question. Does that mean that all white people can play the victim card now? Because, I mean, Lady Gaga said it. I was born this way. All white people are racist. Every single last one of them, all of them are racist. And I don't mean that to say like every single individual white person, if I talk to you, you would have some kind of racist ideology. I'm saying that as a white person, you uphold a system of racism by literally just being white. I believe if you're not spending your literal entire life dismantling racism, then you're contributing to its continuation. Yes, you're racist. Like, okay, we've established that. Now, what are you going to do to change it? I mean, clearly I'm going to listen to you and all of the wisdom that you are just speaking out to me. Being a white person, I am clearly uh, racist, always have been racist, and I guess I will always be racist, even though you did say that the individual white person is like not being the racist right to you in the ideology, but you know, it it just doesn't matter. And and, (laughs) you can't keep up with these people. They're just gonna spout to the camera, much like I am doing right now. But at least I'm trying to be better for everyone, not just you white people who are racist. You're just bad, no matter what, no matter what happens. <sighs> well, that's going to wrap it up for this segment. But you can be sure, <laughs> you can be sure there will be plenty more craziness next week. Until then, stay sane. If you have a smartphone, tablet, Roku, or Apple TV, consider downloading the Freedom Project media app. It's 100% free and includes all of our weekly shows, plus lecture series, archive programs, and award-winning animated videos for families like the Presidential Minute, Battles of America, and Heroes of the West. Don't rely on the social media giants to keep you informed. Simply download the Freedom Project media app from your app store and allow notifications. And we'll let you know when a new video is ready. Well, this story has absolutely nothing Nothing. to do with education, although I could argue it does. It it does discuss a topic. It's near and dear to my heart and my feet. Crocs. You see, I love Crocs. In fact, I do wear them pretty much every day. And I live in Wisconsin, so it, it works. It's all right. Well, there is one woman in Canada, all the way up north there in Canada, who is trying to outcrock me with her massive collection that has the internets all aflutter. Rayanne, who also goes by Croc Queen, Uh-oh. claims to have 159 pairs of the what? comfy, luscious shoes. And in a recent TikTok video, she displayed them for the internet to see. Let's check this out. I could have my Gucci on. I could wear my Louis Vuitton. But even with nothing on, that I made you look, I made you look, yeah.
Some people have too much time on their, too much time on their hands. As a fun little bonus, Rayanne also has more than 700 gibbets, and I have no idea what... The little gibbets. Oh, jeez. They go into the shoe. Which are charms. Oh, okay. Charms that can be added into the holes in Crocs as a way of customizing them. Since 2002, Crocs have sold more than 850 million pairs of shoes and have generated a staggering... 2.3 2.3 billion in annual sales. Katie, would you consider yourself a crockhead, as they are known apparently these days to no, no, your generation? I do not consider myself a crockhead because that's <laughs> too that's too close to crackhead. Too, too, a little bit, a little bit too close to home <laughs> on that one. Um, I love Crocs, but I'm also parsimonious. Look up the word; it basically means I'm frugal. I wear my one pair of Crocs out until the end and it's just a plain black pair i do have a brown pair i do not have 100 what is 159 159, pairs that's silliness those people are that's excessive excessive obsessive and that's a lot of money I mean, I look for the steals and deals on on Crocs. I'm not paying more than like twenty four ninety nine. And up here in Wisconsin, we have Jeez. a thing called Fleet Farm. That's where you go get them if they're on the primo sale. The fact that she also has the the gibbets. That's that I could kids do that like seven, eight year, ten year olds put gibbets on their Crocs. But yep. she is a a grown woman, so well, maybe she. I am not. Yeah. Uh, I'm not on that level. But Crocs are very comfortable. Okay. I will say I started riding the Croc train a long time before a lot of other people because I'm like, ooh, these are actually nice on my feet. We will take your word for it. You, what, you, you don't have a Crocs? Someday. <laughs> if anyone would like to send David a pair of Crocs, <laughs> what size foot are you? Uh, nine and a half. All right. I will wear them on this show because you can't see And them. in the garden and in, in pretty much everywhere. Pretty, pretty <laughs> soon you're going to be wearing them for everything. But and not while shoveling have- snow, I bet. Well, you because they're holy. You can wear I them to church, d- though. I have t- I have worn them a time or two while shoveling. <laughs> Interestingly enough, they actually they stayed very nice because they have a higher step to them, so I don't actually get snow. Anyway, you can wear them, as my husband says, in off like off road mode because it has a nice like support system for the back of your ankle, okay. or you can flip that up and then make it more like a slide in. It's great. It's amazing. Crocs. All right. Well, that's enough crock talk for now. We're going to wrap up Educated for this week. David, I just taught you a thing or two, didn't Jeez. I? You just learned so much. I am, Nine and a half. Send yes, him a pair. I'm crock-ucated. You're crock-ucated. Educated. Yeah. <laughs> crock. Crock-ucated. Here. <laughs> All right. For Katie and myself, thank you for watching, listening, and sharing and supporting this show. Until next week, stay educated, America. Educated is directed and produced by Mike Menzel. Hosted by Katie Petrick and David Fiorazzo. Makeup and Hair by Katie Scholl. Graphics designed by Dan Kaler. Educated is owned by Freedom Project Media. See other shows and content at freedomproject.com or download the Freedom Project Media app. Copyright 2023.